Hey everybody, super cool new virtual events coming up that I am very excited to share with you. By the way, YouTube channel, newly organized, didn't even have a YouTube channel before this pandemic. Now I have one, it's going to be a regular part of my life even after this, even when I get back to touring. So many cool things on there. Please check it out. But I, uh, if you do, you can watch this podcast and listen to this podcast on YouTube ad-free, no intros, no outros, just hear this straight interview, uncut, see our facial expressions, all that sort of thing. Nice thing to have on in the background when you're doing maybe computer work at home, cleaning around the house, that sort of stuff where where you don't want to have to like pay attention to every single detail and watch every little bit of something like a, uh, like a, you know, intense TV drama or whatever, where you want to catch every plot point. Podcasts are a cool thing to have on in the background, and then you can just uh, uh, peek your head up once in a while and have a look. So check it out there if uh, if you'd like. If you if you um, if you don't like hearing me babbling on about all of all the exciting things that I have going on, if you do like hearing about it, got a special birthday announcement. Got to be honest with you guys, I feel a little silly. I've always felt a little silly about birthdays, mostly about birthday celebrations. I feel silly about. I've never wanted parties or anything like that. But I do like transitions in life. I like talking about transitions in life. And um, and so, uh, it, you know, these are m- much like New Year's Eve or something where I, I don't necessarily want to have go to a party on New Year's Eve. But I love the opportunity to reflect on the past year and think about the next year, even if it is like... If, ultimately arbitrary and one date's just as meaningful as as the next. I think any opportunity for reflection is fun and good and uh, and a, a real a great exercise in mindfulness and there's never been such a, a bizarre, odd, interesting, turbulent, um, malleable, changing time as now. And so, I'm throwing myself a little virtual birthday party in the form of the very first virtual stand-up science show. Stand-up science is a half comedy, half science show I was touring around with. I can't do it just like it was. Uh, It's not going to be stand-up comedy and half talks, half stand-up comedy. It's just going to be big conversations, but it's going to be a little bit looser than this podcast. It's going to have more people involved. And the main difference is you. It's live. It's streamed. You get to add comments. You get to add questions. You get to hear about things that the researchers are experts on. I'm sure when you're listening to this podcast, sometimes you have some questions. You get the opportunity to hear questions, to ask for clarification on something. Sometimes I breeze over something because I already know it and forget that not everyone knows the thing that uh, I had to read several books to find out about. And it's easy to take some of that stuff for granted. It's easy for my guests to take some of that stuff for granted. And you, the listener, can be more involved and it will help teach us as well getting that immediate feedback. So I'm so excited. May 24th, May 25th is my actual birthday, but May 24th, I'm launching the first ever live stand up science. If you go to shanemoss.com, please. 
check it out. Go to my birthday show and um, and you can find out more. Additionally, um, I have a Psychonautics Q&A coming up this Sunday. So what I'm building toward, guys, if you'll support me in this, if you'll be up for it, what I'm building towards is doing a regular Sunday afternoon virtual show so that anyone, anywhere can be a part of it and interact. And this is not just some stopgap. This is not just some compromise for the quarantine where where we watch and go, oh, this is this is sad. This just reminds me that I'm in a quarantine. Uh, the the country music awards or whatever have to be done from here. And oh, isn't this? It, and uh, you know, it, it's just this compromised, uh, heartbreaking letdown that reminds us of our of how many compromises we have to make in this situation. This is a celebration of new opportunities. This is something that I hope to do for a very long time. Even when touring comes back, people are always like, hey, will you live broadcast stand-up science or head talks? I won't. There's a lot of reasons why I won't. One is because I do do some of the same material, not, not if I come back to a given city, but if you were to see me doing all hundred shows a year or whatever, you'd see uh, you'd see some of the same jokes over and over again. So it burns some of the material. Unlike music, people don't uh, you know covers don't work. Hearing the same those greatest hits over and over again doesn't work. So this is going to be a free flowing way of getting you guys involved, entertaining you guys from afar, and doing a live show that I want to continue to do even after this. This is this is an improvement. This is an, in addition to the other things um, that I do. So this is a really, really exciting opportunity for me. And May 31st, I'm trying to do one. The, the week after, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, stand-up science. Not trying, I am doing. I, I don't have all the guests booked yet. But Nina Pfefferman, my favorite guest uh, since the pandemic, um, in terms of her, her ability to speak so clearly and eloquently about these things. She's going to join me. I'm having her get a couple colleagues or I might reach out to a couple other people that, uh, that I thought were uh, really high caliber to get sort of a, a COVID update because we talked about this, you know, a couple months ago. We did some virology stuff, do some 101 stuff. What's the updates? Where are we now? What are the new predictions being made? And you guys will get to interact. You'll get to ask questions. Whatever questions. You got a conspiracy theory? You wondering if this is made in a lab? If this is the deep state cabal? Ask. You're welcome to come. Join in the fun. Ask. They will be happy to answer any question that they have. Let's get some clarity. Let's let everyone be involved. I'm sure that I'm sure that many times you go and you watch the news and you hear this politician say this, this doctor say this, this scientist maybe say this, and you probably have questions of your own. I hope that you do. If you're a listener of this podcast, you're a highly inquisitive person. I hope you have some questions. This is an opportunity to have your questions answered by the experts. I have this incredible privilege. I get to ask these people all the time whatever the heck I want and whatever's on my mind. Now is a chance for you to be involved. I'm so excited for this. So keep up with that, guys. And if you want to 
if you want to check, uh, I'm, uh, I, I didn't really plan out what I was going to say here. I just wanted to um, gush about all of the things that I'm enthusiastic about um, at the moment in, this, in these turbulent times of ups and downs. And uh, if you go on Patreon, so anyone that's a Patreon subscriber of $5 a month or more will get all of these for free. Or you can pay for an individual one. If you're on my email list, you get a discount on everything on each show as well. And um, and so this is, uh, uh, this is, I'm figuring it out. You know, I'm trying to put together, um, you know, a real business that, that can be done within um, the confines of this and isn't just a compromise, but something that is, um, no, I can't do stand-up comedy. No, I can't perform for a live crowd in the flesh, but I can do things that are pretty cool that I want to keep doing even after all of this is done. So I would love your support there. Everything, 100% of my Patreon money goes to supporting the crew, my assistant and editor of this podcast, everything else. So check that out. Don't forget about my sponsors, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are to get your free trial today. What am I doing? I'm taking an introduction to infectious disease class. Why? Because I want to get ready for this interview at the end of May, on May 31st. And the first time, I didn't know anything about virology when all this started. And so I didn't know basic 101 stuff. I didn't even have a clue of the right kinds of questions to ask. And I was still just having such amazing interviews because my guests have been so good at helping explain this uh, to all of us. And so I'm, I'm trying to step it up a notch and the great courses plus is helping me out. This is a great way to learn and educate yourself. It, it, you know, if you're, if you're doing all the right things out there and you're distancing and everything else and, and taking science's word for it. Great. If you're not, why, why don't I, can I please encourage you to rather than watching a, a silly conspiracy video on the internet and seeing some three minute thing and making up your mind about something. Take a class. It's going to take some time, but you got the time. If you got the time to look up a bunch of conspiracy theory videos that are, are potentially going to make you put a bunch of other people's lives at risk because you're not going to uh, follow along with what actual experts are doing. Please, at least before, why don't you actually learn the science and, and then see what, what you think is flawed about it. So go, go on, go to great, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are today to check it out. Um, and, uh, and if you want to take the course along with me, um, you'll be as informed as I am when we do this live stand-up science show May 31st. So please check that out. You guys are so awesome. Enjoy today's show. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name is Shane Moss. Today, I'm talking with 
Catherine York. Catherine, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. You were a past stand-up science guest. Yes, in, that's right. In Manchester, I forget how many months ago. It seems like ages, in a way. Um, was, what are they calling it now? The before times? Yeah, no kidding, right? Before the world changed. Um, and that was a lot of fun. So that was in Manchester. I teach at Southern New Hampshire University, where I've been for 10 years. I am basically just trying to get through all of this like everybody else. That season is about to about to be here, uh, which is good. Of course, nature isn't waiting on any of us. So the uh, work that I'm doing with bats will will start up here in another week or so. So that's that's kind of my life waiting. Yeah. yeah. So you're 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 a bat researcher. Yeah, I, I teach a lot of different things. I, uh, most of my courses are um, general biology. I teach zoology. Uh, and I've loved bats for many, many years. So I've been doing little studies around New Hampshire and New England um, to survey bat populations. As we all know, uh, white nose syndrome is now reaching even farther across the West. So um, it's pretty important to, to know kind of what's happening with bat species. And I've been doing that for um, a number of years now. Mm. So one, I wore a bat shirt for you. Oh, bats. I love it. That's a great bat shirt. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so good. there's that. And then um, I think we should probably do some some 101 stuff for folks because I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it for granted that everyone knows what white nose syndrome uh, is. I, I don't think that I was I don't think that I was super familiar until I had you on the show. All right. That's that's a good point. I, I often kind of assume that because so many people these days have actually heard of it, which is good and bad. Um, but the basics of it is this. Uh, it is a fungal disease that's affecting bat populations. It has been in the United States since about the winter of 2006. So about 15 years, well, going on 15 years now, uh, 14, 15 years. And before that, it was unknown in the continent of North America. People think that it was brought uh, to this continent by somebody who had been in a cave um, in Europe and probably got the fungus on himself, brought it over to New York, so the state of New York was the first place that this fungus began to spread. And now in a real bullseye pattern, you can see this fungus spreading through bat populations to the extent that uh, there's probably around eight or nine different species of bats that have lost up to 90, 97% of all of the bats uh, in this region. So the New England region has really been hit hard. In particular, our most common bat, um, which is uh, called a little, little brown bat, uh, has been decimated. So uh, there are a lot of studies going on right now to try to see if they're going to come back, are they going to rebound, uh, what kind of things can we do. Um, and I guess if you'd like, I can tell you a little bit about what the disease looks like, or if you have any questions, just interrupt me. So many. Um, <laughs> all, all right. I, I mean, first of all, I, I, this is this is really interesting because right now uh, humans are 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 worried about the decrease in their population because of a uh, because of something bat related, but, but uh, it, it looks like humans have been harder on bats than the than the other way around. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that too. There is this sort of rumor that you know again that coronavirus has come from bat populations in Asia and those kind of things. Um, so I know. I'm not an expert on those things, but I can tell you from a bat scientist uh, perspective, kind of um, sure. what I'm thinking about there. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, should I finish up about 
white nose or then oh you why her? you steer the ship I, this is just a this, this is if you've never heard my it's super conversational okay, we're, we're just having a chat yeah it, about rats is there's so much to say you know yeah you know, great no i i you believe me i i will not stop myself from interrupting you at any time okay. with any questions or whatever okay. so well, then, whatever you find I, interesting let me let me just let me just tell you a little bit about what white nose disease does to bats first of all fantastic um because it's been around for a while um it it actually forms a little fungal mask on their noses, which is where it got the name white nose syndrome. So it looks like a fuzzy um, area on their, their muzzles. Uh, and it, it loves cold and uh, really kind of cold environments. So this, this fungus is really dangerous in the time when bats hibernate for the winter. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing about it. it. Gets on their noses and it starts to form this little mask. It causes them to wake up early in the year. So around April, um, early, you know, again, uh, March and April, they begin to itch and scratch and kind of wake up and it causes them to leave their hibernacula a little bit too early. So they start flying out before there are any um, insects around, nothing to eat. So they tend to starve and they uh, undergo a really slow decline and ultimately die. It also causes their wings to get holes in the wings. So many times you'll find bats that are dead just on the ground that are unable to fly. So well, this the, wait, the, the fungus makes the holes? In the yeah, it, it actually causes lesions in the wing. So they'll have, it looks like ravaged wings is the way that you'll see it described, sort of ragged looking. So there's this, so there's this like very direct impact that's like physically their way, but then there's also this like sort of a, a little more nuanced, less direct of like it causes them to go out, which then causes them to starve. Yes, all those things. So it's a, a very unfortunate way for them to die. And it spreads very easily through these caves where they're all um, clustered together in the wintertime to hibernate. So that's kind of the extent of what the fungus will do. And it's caused just huge decimation of all the populations around here, in particular in New England. Um, It's spreading out west now. So it's actually reached Texas, um, uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, this whole uh, line that sort of reaches up to through the west. It's even been found in Oregon. Um, So that's some really dangerous indications that it's spreading in those areas. One big place that people are really worried about now is Texas. There's a lot of hibernating bat uh, areas in in Texas. So um, it's spreading still. And so it's a big, big problem. In the Northeast, there's a lot of people like me who go out in the bat season. So we have a lot of bats that that go somewhere else to hibernate in the winter and come back in the summertime. So really the only time you see bats is between right about now, early May and through October. So that's kind of the only window that we have to look for bats unless you're looking in caves and mines in those areas. Um, So I go out and I count bats and try to see how many of them in the different species there are. Um, Mm. Trying to help with, again, that kind of recovery sort of information. So, um, Mm. yeah. Am I wrong in thinking that one of the major threats to bats is just things that are are more humans going into their cave? So you have minor... I mean, it's amazing that someone was just... Like, I've, I've been caving... Myself, I, it was a really fun activity. I did it once. I, I plan to potentially do it again. I had never thought like, oh, I could be negatively impacting a bat population exactly. or something. I, I, it, it never even occurred to me until I, you know, this is before I had you on my show. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so are those, is that the main threat to bats right now is, is like mining and stuff like that or are there other environmental factors of like climate change and other there are definitely all those things so you've got a pretty much um 
kind of the widespread effect of just habitat loss is one major reason that bats are facing a lot of problems because bats will return uh, to what we call maternity colonies where all the female bats will come and have their babies, um, which happens usually uh, early June around that area. Uh, and in this part of the country, there are really big colonies established. When you cut down trees and you lose those, hybrid, those um, uh, habitats, then that's a big uh, way that you can actually decrease species across the board. Um, so that's one big thing, habitat loss. You've got that in conjunction with climate change, just the loss and the change of food sources as we warm and continue to have different kind of, again, um, insect populations changing, things like that uh, will actually be a stress as well. Mm. Um, this just happens to be white nose, the fungus happens to be a huge pathogenic um, sort of effect. So that's something that is uh, from an epidemiological point of view, it's, it's because of the way it's decimating things and it has been, you know, it's not even like recognized, it's not a native um, fungus. That's really of great alarm to people. Uh, but yeah, certainly behind it all, you compound that with habitat loss and climate change. And it's just, it's been a huge problem here, of course, in the Northeast and now reaching out West. So I would agree with you. All of those things are big problems. Now, when it comes to mines and caves, you may see, and I don't know out west, um, but I know in Colorado where some of the large hibernacula are and um, Kentucky, really big cave systems, they actually have a lot of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, regulations in place where if you go in, you have to decontaminate yourself. Um, so it may be even, I remember I was in Arizona not too long ago, uh, about three, four years ago, and there were actually, uh, we wanted to go to the Karst Caves, uh, which is in Oh, gosh, I forget what region of Arizona. But anyway, uh, there were a lot of uh, regulations on if you go in, you have to take your shoes off, you have to dip in bleach, you have to do all these different things, gloves and that, uh, trying to keep that fungus out. Mm -hmm. So you probably will see things like that if you do continue to go into caves. It's not that that's the only route of transmission. It just so happens that you're in that way, you might be affecting these places where bats will be hibernating over the winter. Does that make I sense? See. Yeah. Uh, but the um, spread out west is probably because of people. The fact that it got out into Oregon State is probably a result of people carrying hmm. the, the fungus. Are there species of bats that um, that migrate instead of hibernate? Yes, there are. We've got, I mean, I can, the ones I know, of course, are the ones in New Hampshire. And uh, we have eight different species of bats that are native to this state. Uh, many of them, of course, are in different regions as well. But of those eight, just to give you an example, we have three species of bats that tend to um, migrate very long distance. So they'll be going from here in October-ish all the way out west. So, um, and uh, they, they come back around this time of the year and they're actually living in trees mostly that are mm -hmm. in this area. We also have some bats that stay here year round and uh, can live in buildings and around people. They're called synarthropics, so they actually can live with people uh, pretty happily. Uh, and they will typically be hibernating all, all year round around here. Uh, then we have a couple of different species that actually even go to caves. So they may go from here to Kentucky or uh, those areas to find caves and mines. So hmm. I guess you'd consider them to be uh, migratory as well. Are there... Are, are any of those kind of evolved strategies, do, do any of them seem to make for like a more robust species than, than well, a, any other ones? You know, actually, uh, one of the things that has been said is that the big brown bat, which is now our most common bat, 
um, it is a synanthropic bat, so it actually lives. It's the one that if you see people that have them in their attics or their basements, and they're like, oh, my God, it's a bat. It's usually a big brown bat. And because they live with people so well, it is theorized that they actually will have a little bit more resistance. And they usually, again, a little more adaptable in the, in the um, sort of habitats that we have. Mm -hmm. So that is very possible. Um, little brown bats, which is the most hardest hit by this particular fungus, will also somewhat be around people, but they prefer to be a little bit farther away from them. So they'll actually be more, um, you know, again, more resistance. They're not likely to be in your attics and your basements per se, uh, and they've been hit the hardest. So the ones that, the other ones that really have been hit hard include some of the migratory species that tend to go and then encounter bats from other areas. So they're sort of, again, getting this um, exposure from other bats coming from different places. And yeah, that may just lead to them being more susceptible over time. I would I wouldn't argue with that point. Yeah. So more on some 101 stuff. Why the heck do we even need bats uh in the first place? What why, why <laughs> do we awesome. care if we give them a fungus in 99% of the population? Right? I know what, this is How's that influence my day-to-day -day life? You know that I it's it's funny but I think, you know, talking about bats so much and I love them so much and I still am surprised that there's a lot of people that don't love them. I'm, I'm really startled by that because they're so great. They're so wonderful. Uh, no, but seriously, they are very important for a lot of really good reasons. Um, there are, I think if you run into estimates of maybe it's around $5 billion, that's with a B, uh, of protection that bats give us to our agricultural crops every year. So if you take away bats and their ability to eat, they eat up to 50% of their own body weight every night. And that translates into thousands of insects every night. So that can be mosquitoes, but also the kind of pests that, it, um, that will come into crops and decimate corn, potatoes, apples, all those things that we love. Bats are actually out there protecting um, quite a lot from those kind of pests um, and their invasions. So the more we have bats around, the better it is for us in terms of the food we can get and also protection from, of course, the things that bite us. So mosquitoes, bats are very famous for eating all mosquitoes, which is very true. When you have bats around, you'll have a lot less of those problems in general. Yeah. How, uh, how specialized are, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of variants in species, but how uh, how specialized are they in just what they what they eat? Are there bats that just only eat one particular That's kind of insect? That's a good question insect? too. You're right. There is a lot of variation among species. So with with the bats that I'm talking about here, our New Hampshire bats are really kind of generalists. So these are all insectivorous. So they eat all kinds of insects. Many bats will show preferences for kinds of insects. So again, some will eat spiders, some eat moths, some eat some will eat uh, different kinds of uh, again just winged insects, beetles, things like that. So you may find within species, and off the top of my head, I'm not sure uh, with the bats here, but uh, in general, they will eat a lot of different kinds of insects. When it comes to different species that eat, uh, for example, nectar, uh, uh, frugivorous bat, uh, bats will eat nectar of different fruit flowers, fr flowers coming from fruit plants. Uh, those can be highly specialized. So many of those bats are really adapted to eating only one kind of fruit from one kind of tree or plant. Um, and just popping into my mind out west, there's a bunch of bats that are very important in pollination for, um, for example, agave. If you don't know that agave is pollinated by the lesser long-nosed bat. So without that bat, agave flowers will not actually uh, be able to reproduce either. Um, in Asia and all over the world, many of the nectar um, eating bats will help pollinate. 
in various ways. They're highly specialized. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, if you're talking about insects, there's usually a wide range. Uh, they'll eat anything that kind of is around them that can fly or move. Some bats, even out west, there's actually kind of bat um, called the pallid bat that eats scorpions that actually, they land on the ground and they actually crawl towards, they can actually glean their food sources from the ground, which is very interesting. Mm. There are even bats that eat fish. So they can be very specialized in that way too. So um, around Bats the world, fish. there's a there's a fish eating bat that sure is swoops over the water and, and scoops out a fish. And what are we a, talking like a little minnow or something? How yeah. big is this bat? Yeah, yeah, like, like that fish and frogs, and that's an Asian bat. So you know, again, highly specialized over there, uh, huh. which is kind of interesting. So um, actually, one fifth of all mammals in the world are bats. So that's twenty percent of every mammal. Wow. So bats are among the most most numerous animals in the entire world. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're they're pretty amazing. They really are. Um, so what what does that mean in terms of so so when when we lose a given bat species and ninety seven percent of it is is decimated, what does yeah. it, what what does that mean for like a given region? I mean, I, I guess it's so impossible to say exactly what all of the downstream impacts would be. Unfortunately, it is hard to say. And one of the things that, of course, New England is looking at now is our most specious bat, the the little brown bat, is now the least so populous here so we're trying to see everybody's trying to see will this bat recover where is it going to be when it if it does recover where will it go because because of course the ecological niche that was filled by that one species is now being sort of again taken over by different bat bat species that will actually begin to uh, really be successful in a different area so it might make it even harder for that one species to come back although there are signs that recovery is happening, which is good. Um, still, it's going to be really slow. It'll be centuries before you ever see the numbers that were once here. So the question becomes, what were those bats eating and what kind of impact did they have on their habitat? Those are all the questions people are trying to answer now, trying to predict what will happen next. So are bats mostly just each species carving out its own niche in each environment? Or is there, um, is there a fair amount of competition within bat species themselves? That's a good question. Hmm. I would say that probably, again, there is competition for resources depending on where you are. So a lot of these tree bats and uh, the, the bats like the big brown bats and things where eat the same foods, uh, but they exist in different yeah, different sort of areas and locations will have more or less of those particular species. So I'd say that probably competition is important, mm-hmm. uh, just in the kind of roosts they can find, in the kind of um, the food sources there there are. And so, yeah, again, that's a good question, but I'd say it's a good interplay of both. Do you uh, uh, do you know much about like the the deep evolutionary history of of bats? I, I've had a I've had one or two people on talking about the evolution of flight and how it's Flights evolved in a, a few different ways, a few different mm-hmm. times around the world throughout mm-hmm. um, throughout the history of the Earth, and and sometimes things had like these these almost like capes on their arms to like be able to tackle predators more. <laughs> and then, hey, what do you know? You can flap these things around and fly a little bit too. And then feathers evolved maybe for warmth. And then, mm-hmm. hey, this and then other things like uh uh you know a lizard or whatever will have these little things that help it glide yeah. and then okay yeah clever. you know i i only know 
a little bit about those things. I mean, I teach zoology, which is all about the changes of animal bodies over time. Um, and I know something about, again, the origin of bird and bird wings and how the uh, the bones of bird wings, of course, are analogous, analogous to our hands. So are bat bones. So it's the same same group of animals that originally were radiated out um, and then formed these structures. So again, um, the bat wing, there is a thumb and then they have the, the fingers and then the, the uh, stretching of that wing comes down across into the body. So it's the exact same formation, uh, which means it must have happened a long, long time ago. Uh, uh, there are two really big uh, uh, groups of bats, the megachiroptera and the microchiroptera. So the megachiroptera are the big flying foxes that you may know of in Australia. Uh, their wingspans can be up to, gosh, three, four feet long. So they're huge. Um, and then you have the microchiroptera, which are little tiny bats, like the ones we're talking about right now. Their wingspans are only about this long, you know, that long. So, um, so those two big groups of animals must have you know, developed the ability to fly many, many, many millions of years ago. Um, so interestingly as well, uh, birds and the evolution of birds came down through reptiles, as you may know, and uh, the egg laying and, and that sort of, again, group of animals would have been completely different from mammals, which these are. So again, there was a great divergence somewhere between reptiles and mammals. So again, that's a big area that uh, I have to look up a little bit to know some more about dates and things like that. But yeah, there's a, a lot of convergence that happened many, many millions of years ago. That's mm. about the best I can do. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I, I, I know something about sort of patterns. That's about it. Are there places on Earth where bats don't exist? I imagine the poles. Uh, poles are really the only places. Every other continent has bats. Okay. Every other continent. So uh, Australia and um, New Zealand, those areas are the only places you'll really find the large bats, the megachiroptera, which are the flying foxes. They're actually the ones uh, that look, well, they look like foxes. They're huge. Their bodies are really large. I've, I've been to Australia. I've been Have to, you seen them? Uh, yeah, in Sydney near the, um, near the bay or kind of, kind of near the Sydney Opera House there, oh, you yes. know, in the, yes. in the trees. They have the huge, yeah, I, I, my timing was right one time. Oh. I would love to see them. I've never seen them. So oh, that's so amazing. Wow. I would love to someday. I can't and believe you have. It's it's one of the most fantastic bat sightings so I've seen. So and, cool. I, and I, live, I lived in Austin, so <gasps> I, I would get to so see So you know Bracken Cave. Bracken uh, Cave. Yeah. It, well, and then the, uh, well, the bridge is what I was. Oh, the Austin Street Bridge, of course. So yeah, yeah. Uh, two very famous. I grew up what, in San Antonio. What's the, what's the cave? Oh, what Bracken Cave. So Bracken Cave is, um, it's uh, B-R-A-C-K-E-N, Bracken, mm -hmm. and it is out between Austin um, in the Hill Country area. Mm -hmm. It's actually the largest collection of hibernating mammals in North America. So I think there's upwards of 20 million, I forget how many bats, they're Mexican free-tailed bats, uh, which is a particular kind that, that has a tail not attached to the body, but it's actually just a little, looks like a little rat tail. Um, and you can go there now, it actually has been bought by a conservation organization that I love called Bat Conservation International, BCI. BCI is, is actually headquartered in Austin, Texas. They actually monitor that bridge, which is also Mexican free-tailed bats. And so now Austin, yeah, Austin is amazing. So I grew up in San Antonio. I've been to Bracken Cave and the whole deal. And uh, 
it is really incredible down there to see how many people love bats. See, this place is where people love bats. Yeah, to, well, let's say you'll, you're you're uh, you're not going to have a, a a very hard time finding a bat shirt for yourself. In, in you Austin. are not kidding. I know. And Bracken Cave is beautiful. It actually has like a natural amphitheater, and you sit there at at night and watch the emergence, and they just come out over your head. Oh man, for hours they just come streaming out of this cave. It is really cool. So now. That was threatened for a while by construction and people wanting to build houses out there because the hill country is beautiful. But, but BCI has bought that, and now it is a preserve, which is really awesome. So, um, and that, uh, like I mentioned before, is one of the reasons why people are very afraid of this fungus getting down into Texas mm. because that is one of the largest hibernacula in the entire um, North American region. Well, uh, it's there. I I mean, I, I mentioned that I, I went caving be, while I was, uh, be, before I was, aware of this um uh, the possibility that that could be a negative it should should people just not cave that's <laughs> a good question i would say do it carefully i would say that if you go someplace where there are actually posted signs or people saying don't go in this entrance or you know use these kind of regulations just be sure you follow them as carefully as possible mm. uh, because people really don't we don't know how, uh, you know, how far this thing may be carried. Obviously, having it show up in Oregon State, which was about two years ago, I think, um, that was really, really uh, a great concern because the only way it could have gotten there is for is people carrying it. So if you're just careful about what you do and never sort of, you know, again, caving is one of those things. I've never done it. It seems kind of crazy to me. But if you do it for fun, as long as you're, you know, I guess paying attention to the fact that you may have, other creatures in there and being being aware of them would be one thing i'd say i do know that in places where there's a lot of vulnerability they're actually using what's called a heart trap they actually might even like cut off a cave entrance altogether and that might keep people out a little bit so they mm. do that sometimes hmm. um how much it, I'm, I'm thinking back to when you said that um well, I have a couple of questions. One, <laughs> when, when you have something like a, a small, um, uh, you know, small brown bats that are um, that are endangered or something, what what are the steps that someone does to protect an endangered bat? I, I mean, I, mm -hmm. it seems like it seems like with a uh, with a really large mammal, it seems a little more straightforward in terms of like, okay, we gotta mm -hmm. we gotta keep poachers out of here so that they aren't getting it right. It seems, it seems like bringing back bats is a bit more complicated. It is. And, and especially when you're talking about a little, they're so little uh, that it's very hard to recognize them. Even, you know, in flight, it's all, it's very difficult. And if you have one in your house, how are you going to know if it's an endangered species or not? Uh, so that's, those are big questions people have um, with little brown bats and big brown bats. Big brown bats are pretty common, living in people's houses, buildings all over the place. Little brown bats are not, and they're the ones that are getting decimated by this uh, by this fungus. So to tell them apart, it's almost it's extremely difficult. The big brown bat is only it weighs about as much as about six pennies in your hand, 
while the little brown bat weighs about three pennies worth in your hand. So, I mean, there's really just a small difference. How are we ever going to know? Well, that's one of the things that people say about should you find a bat in your house? Should you find a bat on the ground? Anything like that? Don't try and do anything yourself. This is a case where you should actually call somebody who's actually who's able to identify them and help them rehabilitate them or whatever or exclude them uh, sometimes from uh, you know buildings uh, in the right way and not try to do it uh, yourself. Mm-hmm. There is one bat here um, in in the Northeast called the Northern Long-Eared Bat that was listed as federally um, threatened or was it? I think it was threatened or it might have been endangered, I forget what it was. Anyway, they, they did list it, so the state petitioned to have it listed. It's actually a tree-dwelling bat, and so uh, they listed it, and everybody went, oh, my gosh, so that means we can't cut down trees and build our houses, and how are we going to do this? We can't tell if it's even there. So there was a huge amount of public outcry about that uh, because it's so hard to tell if they're there in the first place, and it caused a lot of problems with businesses and sort of the clashes between um, how you regulate these things and who can know this sort of information. Mm-hmm. So there, there are a lot of difficulties like that that you find uh, with land ownership and with how you identify bats can be really, really tricky. That's one reason why people that know bats well, it's important to know in your area who you could contact to come and help you if you have a problem with bats, not try to do it yourself. So if you have a, a situation like you talked about where you have a small, uh, small brown bats decreasing in population size and, and in, in some ways this is creating some opportunity for other bat species that now uh, the, insects are a bit more abundant in a given area or something and these other species thrive um so um uh, how how much does that negate the issue of losing a particular species and and then what is the what is the kind of importance of uh, you know if someone were to say well so if we lose brown bats if other bats just end up if other species just end up thriving and eating all the insects what's the What's the difference? Well, you know, you could actually say that sort of nature is going to uh, fill a vacuum. It's not, you know, again, you'll have those species taking over um, in cases, you know, like that. And I guess, you know, that's that's an interesting sort of management question. Mm-hmm. Um, is it better for us to just sort of leave everything alone and let it take its course? Or is it better to try to mitigate whatever damages may have been actually human caused? And that is really an ethical question that I think is important to ask and people will probably answer it in different ways. My opinion is that if it's something that's human caused, then we have sort of an obligation to try to do what we can to at least try to restore uh, what might have been lost because we don't know all the different uh, ways that these species interact with each other, uh, impact the environment. We, we have no way of telling that. So if there's anything we can do that might help to bring back those, those things that perhaps we have damaged um, and lost, I would say it's worth doing that. Some people might just say, ah, let's just leave them alone because they ultimately you're going to have something filling in again, the gap. Um, but I, I think it's important that we try. That's, that's my opinion on it ethically. Now, bats are a very social species. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more social uh, species on earth. I mean, humans, I, I think humans, we take it for granted being uh, as social as we are, but, it's actually fairly rare to look out throughout the animal kingdom and and see that many species anywhere near as social as we are. Yeah. Bats are this very social species. They live in a, a lot of close quarters. They they kind of have their own little 
um, little cities, little Gotham cities in, <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in each uh, cave. And mm-hmm. then they also have to deal with the spread of contagion and, yeah. and um, epidemics mm-hmm. on, on their own scales. Um, how, how do bats react to uh, I uh, the reason I mean I think one of the reasons why I thought to reach out to you is because I had a I had a um, biologist mentioning the white-nosed fungus and, and talking about some species that seemed to have started picking up on distancing not not mm. not so much picking up on as as probably what's actually happening is the individuals that happen to distance more and have that trait um, mm-hmm. are are surviving and, and thriving a little bit more and are leaving more offspring that also have that mm-hmm. that trait yeah. um, in, to their future generations. Bats having shorter generations happen to evolve a little faster and maybe we're able to see it in a little faster mm-hmm. of a scale than we are something like human evolution. Um, so what what can we what can we learn from um, from bats um, mm-hmm. kind of re- regarding how they how they either manage or, or not just evolve, but maybe they have their own kind of um, threat detections for when mm-hmm. they when they notice um, other individuals that are sick. Um, well, let me a, a couple of things just jumped to my mind, so I just wanted to tell you just a couple of things about the lifespan of bats and the reproductive sure. rate of bats, so that you so that you know. And secondly, yeah. I I just read something the other day about a study that was done, yeah, about how bats might be avoiding some of the white nose contagion. So mm-hmm. um, actually, so bats, first of all, the, the small bats, the microchiroptera, which is all the bats that we have in this area, the insectivorous bats, these little ones, they can live for 20 to 30 years. Oh, wow. I guess I wild. didn't realize that. So they're very long lived. They actually are kind of evolutionarily sort of backwards. So they, they unlike a mouse. Well, let's forget everything that I yeah, said then. No, no, no. <laughs> I, just want, I just want to say they're, they're actually, it's interesting because they, they work on this really, really slow Time span, time frame, and in addition to that, every year, uh, one a female may give birth to one pup, maybe. So that's a really low reproductive rate over a long, long, long time. So actually, they're the way that they um, they withstand these kind of diseases and things can be very different um, from some other kinds of animals, like you may be thinking rodents and things like that. They're not like rodents at all in that way. So there's that, and secondly. The study that I just read was very interesting. In some caves, it is theorized, and some people have been observing caves now for some time in hibernacula to see how are bats surviving, are they surviving, what types of bats are surviving. One of the things they noticed, and this was just one study that was done, uh, was basically saying that bats have learned to wake up either together when they become, they kind of get covered in this fungus and they're all sort of starting to wake up. They either wake up together and they begin to um, then sort of forage for food and they might find that to be a successful strategy and sometimes they actually wake up at different times. So they're kind of distancing themselves and which ones, which type of bats are going to succeed is one of the things that people are sort of looking at right now. Um, so yeah, social distancing, bats when they, when they hibernate are very close together. It's actually their body temperatures are kept very high by that. They're passing things um, amongst themselves, many, many, many thousands of them. Um, And so it's a really interesting um, survival strategy for them. It also is one of the reasons why people think viruses uh, actually can live in bat populations. Unlike us, there's something about the way that they cluster together and the way that their temperature uh, is actually maintained that they think bats for that reason will become actually really good virus 
um, sort of reservoirs as we've now seen with coronavirus possibly. Mm -hmm. So other things like that. So anyway, um, yeah, I guess back to that whole question about how they manage and how they sort of find ways to strategize. Well, it's all about selection, isn't it? So again, you're going to have this particular fungal pathogen or um, in human cases, you know, viruses and things like that are actually going to select for those individuals that are going to be able to survive. And whatever the adaptation strategy is, that's what's going to become the most prevalent uh, amongst these different populations. In fact, up here in the Northeast, there are studies now showing that some little brown bats, the ones that have been totally wiped out, some of them are hanging around. Some of them are now found in a particular hibernacula in the Northeast, and they're actually rebounding a little bit. Why? Well, they're looking at all kinds of different things. Is it something in their genome? Uh, there's actually a really neat study going on with different parts of the genome actually looking at what is being conserved through bat populations being passed down. And are these little bits of genetic information what's giving them resistance as opposed to some others? Okay, those are all questions that, that are going to be answered, I guess, by more studies being done. But in fact, you're right. It could be behavioral. It could be genetic. It could be, uh, you know, something having to do with the immune systems, things like that that are conferring uh, resistance on these bats, some more than others. We're just going to need more time to figure out if we can decipher what it is. Um, and then humans do the same thing. So again, behavioral adaptations happen all the time. We're sort of being forced to do it now, uh, you know, in, in a way to uh, prevent the spread of the virus. But in the end, you know, again, we're seeing vulnerable, pop vulnerable populations being more affected than some others. It's the very same thing, uh, whether you're dealing with fungal infections in bats, viral infections in humans, or even, um, you know, get what well, you name it, any other kind of pathogen. Mm. Yeah. Um, do you happen to know if, um, do, do bats have some of the same issues with, with aging where, where maybe the younger ones might be more susceptible to one thing. The older ones might be more susceptible to another thing. Ah, and a then good there, there's like a prime of their life or whatever. Where there are there are definitely prime there there are prime years, uh, reproductive years that are more um, you know again where they're going to be more robust, and that may actually be something. I do think that younger uh, bats are typically more susceptible for for whatever reason i'm not sure but yeah there's definitely something to the aging process that that just like us may actually affect i think that just has to do with the immune system overall i i love i love mating behavior how mm -hmm. um how how do how do bats get funky let's talk about some <laughs> talk about some bat porn well actually in the northeast uh in particular i i do think that one of the reasons why we have all the stories about bats at halloween is because around october uh, when everything's getting cold and you have the full moon and everything, you'll actually find outside of hibernacula, bats will swarm. So they will actually be in the air, just swooping around, and they're actually mating in the air. They do it at that time of the year, and then they go into hibernation. So the females are pregnant, but then they have what's called delayed uh, implantation, so they delayed uh, fertilization or whatever. They actually hibernate throughout the year pregnant and then emerge in the spring to have their babies. So that's actually their reproductive cycle uh, every year. And yeah, this is the time, of, that's the time of year rather that, that bats will actually do that. Mating wow. on the wing. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> around here. So in the West, you can have different so, kinds of species, but that's what it the seems. It, is it kind of? It seems like the. Uh, you, have you ever seen the videos of, like the fighter jets like refueling? Yeah, exactly. That is kind of what it's like. Yeah, <laughs> it must be a very quick process. I actually don't know much about that other than that. So that's pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> so, and speaking of being social, so in the summertime yeah. months male bats will tend to be more solitary. They live in trees, they'll go and do their own things. So they tend not to be as social while the females get together in these huge maternity colonies and they live in the thousands. So that is a very interesting sort of social strategy that they have. So wait, all the so, male bats typically that. male bats will oftentimes be much more solitary. You can ah. find little little congregations of males that may be together, maybe for protection or for foraging, but in general, they're much smaller groups than oh, the large so maternity. But those maternity colonies are all females. Oh, and yeah. then I, I guess there's not the... Uh... Oh, it's just occurring to me. So bats probably don't have pair bonding as much. They don't, not nearly as much, no. So, they're, yeah. They're, they're, because they're living in colonies, whereas right. like birds aren't living in colonies as much. And then, right. and, and then there's the, uh, so, so is there more of a communal in terms of, uh, in terms of raising their, yes. their young? I, yes. I, I, I remember, I mean, that's one of my, uh, favorite studies about altruism of the injecting. It's also yeah. one of the worst things that's a real sad study too um, i've read things like that yeah. but the, the injecting the air into that what what is it the vampire bats that um, um so uh, well i'll just i'll just say it the way that i can recall it and then you can correct okay. me and may, or maybe you don't know but it's i believe vampire bats they, they're able to collect a bunch of blood in their what Kind I think like the scientific a, term is blood collection pouch <laughs> neck. It's like thing. a crop. It's uh, like a crop. Yeah. yeah. And 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 they go back and and they often, it's often kind of a, a communal feeding for the young. And that way, if if uh, if one mom can't come back with the uh, with blood one day, comes up short on a hunt one day, like the other mom, and, and then. And then heard they, of this, but I don't know and, much about it. And so there, there's a there's a bit of um there's a bit of altruism going on in there, uh, making sure that you know, like I, uh, I I'm bringing back the blood one day. Hopefully you, <laughs> right? And I come up short. You're feeding my young <laughs> uh -huh. the other day. And then there's actually um to kind of to keep this in check. There's all of these kind of social pressures. And so they've tested this by they'll have a they'll have a a mom that didn't get blood and they inject her um her blood pouch story thing <laughs> yeah. jig with air to make it look full oh, okay. to the other bats and then and then when she comes and she doesn't have blood to give but it looks like she has blood to give and and the other bats see her not feeding their young oh. Oh, what and happens then, then? And then they retaliate by not feeding her young. Interesting. See, I've not read that. You should send me that that paper because yeah, that sounds really interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Now, I all I can tell you is that in the maternity colonies here, um, female bats can recognize their own young. Uh, typically, when they go out and they're you know getting insects at night, if it is a, um, a mother bat, the baby is actually attached to their abdomen. So they're flying around with the baby. 
Mm -hmm. uh, some bats will leave the babies in on branches, like red bats will leave the babies and then come back to them uh, and then bring them to the roost. Then uh, coming into the roost, they actually can recognize by smell and sound mm -hmm. their own babies out of these thousands. So they're really attached in that maternal way, uh, while at the same time getting a lot of the benefit of having that communal relationship because all the bats there are going to be now keep in mind you know again they're they're feeding their bats their babies as they're catching these insects so you know again there's that and they're nursing so the babies are usually again um, suckling at that time and then when they become volant which means being able to fly that happens around late june early july then they're out feeding on their own Mm. So that makes sense. So, the, so they're not like birds and feeding like what they're eating. They're actually just getting the energy to, to make milk is what mm. they're doing. Yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> so, so but there's a few it, different it keeps, strategies out there. Yeah. A couple of different things, but they're all, you know, again, maintaining protection from uh, different kinds of um, predators and things by having this large group. And also, again, utilizing all the resources in that area. Uh, but the only time they have those babies would be as they're, as they're um, drinking milk. Hmm. And then they fly off. So it's the common understanding is that bats are flying around with with sonar. Mm -hmm. Why why do they have eyes? <laughs> Echolocation is actually one of the main ways they can identify where insects are flying in the air. Mm -hmm. But um, but actually the big uh, flying foxes that you saw in Australia don't use echolocation. They only use their eyes. Mm. And the bats here actually have pretty good eyesight, even though, you know, it's kind of like blind as a bat. That's a myth. They actually can mm -hmm. see as well. And sometimes, particularly, you know, again, early in the evening and things like that, they can see well enough to sort of be able to also um, know what's in their surroundings and what they can eat. Um, the bats that are, again, can even land on the ground will use echolocation just to determine distance. But then, you know, getting up close, they can use a combination of sight and echolocation to kind of be able to, to focus in on their prey. Hmm. Echolocation is really just for directional signals sort of knowing uh, which direction to be heading in. Uh, but they can see. They mm. can see. And they can see you if you come towards them in their hibernacular, things like that. They can definitely tell uh, what is um, in their environment, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. So I, um, uh, this is maybe the question that, that uh, some listeners have been waiting for this whole time. Better before we... Yeah. I mean, I'm well, I'm, and then I'm what I like a variety of foods. I love trying, <laughs> I love trying new things. I, but I think people are very like judgmental about that. You know, I think the, I, I think people would be, um, you, you know, I've had episodes talking about, uh, you know, some cultures that eat a bunch of insects and stuff mm -hmm. like that, that are like really good for protein. And oh, like, sure. they're, they're, there's all these fantastic benefits to eating insects, but just because we haven't grown up that way, we go, Whoa, insects. Yeah. It's a um, cultural thing, but but, but I'm I'm sure if I'm sure if like some disease was like traced back to an insect that someone ate, we'd be like, I can't believe people <laughs> yeah. are eating insects. What's yes. wrong with these people? Yeah, Where it would actually be good to eat insects. So so knowing this, I can't tell if I should be eating bats or not. I mean, well, I'm a little <laughs> curious. <laughs> there's a couple of things. So I do want I do. 
I'm certainly connected to a lot of these different bat organizations that I'm reading from people who are studying where this coronavirus has come from. Mm -hmm. And I do want to just say that even though bats are implicated in all of this, they're not necessarily the only ones carrying these viruses. Bats, unfortunately, are able to harbor viruses a lot more uh, readily than many other kinds of animals for the reasons I mentioned before. Their immune systems simply are able to uh, decimate viruses, their temperatures, something about the way they roost and the way they, there's a lot of things that viruses uh, can, well, viruses actually live within them. It's called endemic. Oh. So they're living in bat populations, but not causing the bats any sicknesses. Then so the when, bats are just the vectors. Exactly. They're called right. reservoirs. They're called reservoirs. Okay. So, so the bats are living with these viruses and have been for millions of years probably mm -hmm. and have evolved. They evolved to live together without causing dangerous symptoms to the mm -hmm. bats or to any other animals, because you know pangolins have been implicated, there's civet cats, there's a lot of other animals that actually carry viruses. The problem is the virus then comes into a human body and says, oh, this is a perfect host, and now I shall, then there's, there's what we call a spillover, and in that moment, we have the virus beginning to take over a new host, and it's just decimating us, because again, there hasn't been that long evolutionary sort of uh, ability to um, live together. Um, and create evolution towards mildness. They say that viruses typically are going to evolve towards mildness because they don't want to kill their hosts. Viruses that kill their hosts off immediately have nowhere to go. Right. So it's like, um, you know, again, many uh, kinds of viruses like the common cold is also a coronavirus mm -hmm. and has been living with us endemically for a very long time, you could say, because we all probably carry little bits and pieces of it, but it's not causing us any major symptoms. This virus is a brand new one to us, and over time, the theory is that it will become more mild. It's actually going to find a way to live within us without causing a whole lot of major damage. So what we're seeing now is major damage coming from, they think, a bat source. Mm -hmm. um, and so the cultural, the cultural um, traditions around eating bats are things that we probably don't understand. Uh, my concern is you have a lot of animals uh, that may be consumed in different cultures and are part of traditions that, uh, represent sort of, again, um, either dietary tastes or maybe, um, you know, again, celebrations or whatever. Those things we can't really know about. The problems come when people are eating animals because there's nothing else to eat. Mm. And in that case, you have people going into uh, populations of animals and sort of like taking from the wild. It's called bushmeat. And taking bushmeat from the wild can mean that you you're eating something that is a whole new, again, um, reservoir for something that is unknown. And then, boom, it's kind of like Ebola. It was also theorized that bats in Ghana, in Western Africa, were probably one of the reasons why Ebola in 2016 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. took off because that was bush meat. That was, that was meat that people just had nothing else to eat and they had to go there. Mm. So there's a, there's a, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would be, I would certainly be fine if no human ever ate a bat ever yeah, again, me too. but I, would um, too. <laughs> I, I mean, but at the same time, like some people's react, it's like, well, if, if we, if we find that cats can carry Corona, no, no one's sitting there going, we need to stop domesticating cats and get rid of all of our cats and euthanize all of our cats. Yeah. But when it's a bat, might might very well be a much mm -hmm. bigger threat than mm -hmm. than and, the probability of someone actually eating a bat. And unfortunately, bats are probably one of the most um, misunderstood and feared animals in the world. So what we're getting now is people going out and retaliating by just destroying populations of bats 
all over the place. Different countries are now going out and culling bats. Really? They, you know, I've read about it in South oh. America. I've read about it in Australia. I've read about it. People that are afraid and they go out and they destroy bat populations just oh. thinking, oh, we'll get rid of the coronavirus because this is the way we're going to do it. That's not actually the way yeah. to do it. So it's really people are unstoppable well you know when when ebola happened in western africa that's what happened to a lot of bats out there people just just killed them off so uh that's unfortunate given the reproductive rate and all of you know the things we know about bats and how good they are yeah uh, yeah so well, you the get a lot of misunderstanding some people know about that. The, yeah. the, the things that a small minority of the human population knows yeah. about bats yeah and i would say you know one of the best ways to prevent this kind of a spillover event is just give people enough food that they don't have to go into these unknown areas and sort of go deeper and deeper into uh you know parts that have not really been um you know again exploited before that's really what needs to happen and leave bat populations alone if possible so hmm. well yeah. how much of it is just that it's a de delicacy like that may be well that's what i mean is like there's the cultural things about it which that may be harder to address and maybe you won't change that but i would say that in general if it's a cultural taste there are a lot of places where that may be eating bats may just be part of sort of the accepted. Well, if that's the case, then usually they're doing that sustainably. They usually aren't going to places that are sort of again brand new. And that's the place where you'll have these spillover events happening. But, hmm. um, but in general, yeah, the cultural beliefs are much harder to change. Hmm. So I don't know how, you know, how to address that is only through education and helping people understand, you know, again, why, uh, why it might be not a good idea to eat an animal that is um, potentially a virus res reservoir, which hopefully they're trying to do. And mm. this, this pangolins were also somewhat in the story here. Um, and uh, many other animals uh, in particularly Southeast Asia in that area mm. are carriers of viruses as well. So it's just a matter of how many animals are being taken from the wild mm. and how many could be sustainably um, again, consumed if, if populations really, really wanted that to be, that's harder to change. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm, I'm hoping that we created some new Batmen and women. Um, <laughs> that's are awesome. <laughs> through, through this, yeah. If, if, uh, got got a, a couple questions as we're wrapping up. Mm -hmm. One, what what can people think about and and do, uh, or or major takeaways you'd hope that people have. Um, and then, and then also, uh, if there's like a good bat book or documentary or something like mm, that. Okay. Well, I think one of the major takeaways I would love for people to think of the next time you see a bat or you hear about a bat or you, you know, again, read about a bat or there's movies with bats is think about the fact that a lot of the things that you believe about bats are actually not true. There's a lot of myth myths and a lot of misunderstanding about this very, very important group of animals. And the reality is that bats are extremely docile. They're, they're gentle. They're really helpful in so many ways. And they're actually really beautiful little animals if you get to see them up close. So I would say that again, overall, the most important thing I would hope people would do is think before you just indiscriminately kill bats. So uh, like get some help, get some people who can help you figure out if a bat is in your house, don't just swat it down and kill it. Uh, they're actually very fragile, you know, beautiful little creatures. Um, and I would hope that people might just take another look. In doing that, there's a lot of um, good things online. So, so when you read or 
hear about bats, one of the places you could go online to check it out would be Bat Conservation International. Um, it is an incredible resource, and that's the one that's based in Austin, Texas. They, um, they do so much to promote uh, the understanding of bats and just how amazing bats really are. So you could just look them up online and maybe read about, oh, I don't know, take a trip to Bracken Cave or, you know, like uh, have a chance to actually think about um, these very misunderstood little animals. Hmm. Amazing. Well, um, that was terrific. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. There's <laughs> yeah. so, so much that, you know, again, uh, many people are studying in so many ways, uh, and I only know little bits and pieces of it, but yeah. it is really, really important that everybody, hopefully, will appreciate bats. Yeah. Very, very so cool. as well. Well, thank you, Catherine York, for joining thank you. me. That's and right. thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk to you <laughs> next episode. Thank you for joining me. You guys are great. That's why you got a little thank you song. And again, this Sunday, check it out. One and only time, going to the Psychonautics Q&A, live streaming Psychonautics. Got the producer, uh, Matt Schuler, director and editor, Brian Belenkoff, joining us. And we're going to, we're going to set things up. We're going to play the movie. We're going to comment along with you guys we're gonna have a bit of fun share some of the behind the scenes stuff and do q a's after the film so check it out and if um uh, again if if you're uh you know i'm i'm charging for these because i'm i'm trying to do what i do for a living just like restaurants trying to provide you food still need to charge you for the food um, I need to make money as well to keep this going. But if you are down and out and you can't afford one of these shows and you really want to see it, please send me a message on Instagram and, uh, and or Twitter or Facebook or whatever or go to shanemoss.com. Um, go to the contact page. You can email my assistant. I don't want you to miss out because you're down and out. I'd love to be able to cheer you up for a few hours. So, uh, you know, keep that in your mind. Don't, don't let the price, uh, the small price, by the way, but don't let that small price exclude you from joining if you are broke right now, like so many of us trying to stick together on broke people. So thank you so much for, uh, for listening and subscribing, writing reviews. I hope you get a chance to check out the new podcast page. I love my web series quarantine couple i would love if more people checked it out i don't know how to get more eyeballs on it because i'm new to advertising youtube stuff and there's a bunch of algorithm crap i gotta figure out and you can't post the links on like twitter or facebook without it automatically being lowered because that's youtube's competition with them so they don't uh, so they'll automatically bump down anything with a youtube link all this dumb stuff like that that i gotta figure out to get things in front of people's eyeballs but you guys that listen all the way to the end you guys are going to like this more than anyone so please check it out go to shanemossmauss.com check out my youtube channel today thank you
big shout out to my editor who is working overtime. We're trying to do this every day. And one of the big bottlenecks is editing and figuring out all this tech stuff, figuring out how to do these remotely better and what the compromises are in, in audio and video quality and, and make fixes so that it can sound as good as possible for you guys. And Jimmy Fro is the audio file that edits all of these for me and he is uh, working overtime and exhausted. So go and thank him. Special thanks to his Mind Rocket Sessions for today's outro music by Between the Witches. Check out the full live video session at YouTube by searching the Mind Rocket Sessions or go to mindrocketsessions.com. Network.